0: Copernicus published his famous treatise on astronomy in 1543. It places the sun in the center of the universe. It's a heliocentric, systematic treatise of the motions of the heavenly bodies. 1543, that is uh, the culmination of the Renaissance in Europe, you might say. Or is it? Actually, some people say Copernicus stole a lot of the important ingredients from a medieval tradition, from the tradition in the Islamic world, a tradition of Arabic Islamic astronomy. So maybe Copernicus borrowed these things or stole them or plagiarized them or uh, borrowed without acknowledgement or whatever you like to call it, took inspiration uh, somehow from those sources. Uh, some people say that based on certain similarities, that uh, there are some elements in Copernicus' way of doing astronomy, some some geometrical components, that are also found in the Arabic tradition. So could it be a question of transmission? Uh, Unfortunately, direct evidence is not conclusive on this question. There is no direct evidence that those sources that Copernicus supposedly would have been inspired by, that those were available uh, to him in Europe, but the people in Europe knew about that. So these were things that were developed maybe uh, 300 years or so before Copernicus in the Eastern Islamic world. The, the Maraga school, it is sometimes called the, the center uh, at the observatory in Maraga in Iran, where a lot of these kinds of work was done or a lot of the people involved in that these kinds of work were associated with that observatory. So that's um, quite far from Europe. So It's not the kind of thing that was readily available uh, widespread in Europe at that time. You know, certain uh, earlier works of Arabic astronomers were available in Europe. They had been translated into Latin. And so even Copernicus himself was well aware of that and cited Arabic authors uh, numerous times in his book, in his 1543 book. He he cites uh, various... Islamic astronomers, numerous times. Those are the ones that had already been translated into Latin. They had already been absorbed into the European tradition. And they were from an, an, an earlier part of the Islamic scientific tradition and uh, uh, more basic. Whereas, these more sophisticated ideas that the question whether the Copernicus would have stolen them or not, those uh, concern more advanced things and, and not things that were. Available in Latin translation, and it has not been absorbed into the European scientific tradition in any documented way at this time. So, very well. Uh, there you have the the question: Should we decolonialize uh, the history of astronomy, etc., etc.? Some people say so. Here, let me quote here Noel Swerdlow, the famous leading figure, professor at uh, yeah, Chicago for many years, and later at Caltech, and he has passed away recently. Well, here are the words of this uh, authority on the subject, No Swirlow, and he says, the relation between the models of Copernicus and, and of the Islamic astronomers is so close that independent discovery by Copernicus is all but impossible. The question, therefore, is not whether, but when, where, and in what form he learned of Maraga theory. So somehow Copernicus must have picked up that stuff, even though there's no direct uh, document that contains that kind of information in a, in a form that Copernicus could have realistically read he didn't read arabic for sure and the, these arabic manuscripts were not lying around anyway and they were not translations and so it's complicated but of course it's always possible there could be oral transmission uh, in some complicated way who knows so uh, it's an open question whether or not Copernicus would have uh, been inspired by this tradition. So I have written about this question. I have published two articles about that, uh, where I challenge it. Basically, I'm going to say that there's little compelling evidence to believe. And I think these statements that I just read by Noel Swirlow saying that, well, he must have the the, the relations between the all is so compelling that it's basically impossible to, to think otherwise. This, I think is, uh, we should not accept that line of argument in my opinion. So, we, I will go through the evidence and we will um, have come to our own conclusion. So, in any case, I, I, gave, I published those articles about that. I recently gave a talk at a conference about this and so on. So, actually, I have some slides that I made for, for this stuff because I've been speaking about that a number of times and so on. So, I'm going to post that on the website, you know, with the, along with this, this episode here. I'm going to post the PDF slides. So for those who want to download and can follow along with, uh, if you want some visuals and stuff, I mean, I'm going to explain things here in a self-contained way as best I can. But So uh, also the references for everything that I say, I'm going to put that. It's all in these slides over here. If you want to check some sources, you want to check where the quotations are coming from. Uh, it's all there. So, all right. Yeah. So back to the question then, what is the... Uh, you know, I, I wrote about this, I challenged the uh, kind of standard account, you know, that we are supposed to believe that Copernicus must have taken these ideas, even though we cannot prove that. So I, I challenged that. And here, uh, there was some years ago, you know, I wrote, uh, published an article in 2014 and another one in 2018 about that. So, and some people, the the uh, kind of establishment, as it were, have not responded very favorably in all cases, you know, it's these people who are already invested obviously in that, uh, in that thesis are not going to appreciate when I challenge it. So uh, for example, Yamil Regep is a leading figure, Canada research chair at the McGill University, a in, in in Montreal, Canada. So he's a leading figure and he is one of the main advocates then of the transmission theory that Copernicus must have received these ideas in some form and, so here we can see how he, he reacted uh, to this. Uh, and he says in a recent publication uh, from 2022, for the most part, historians of science have accepted the influence of Islamic astronomy on Copernicus. He says treats that as a fact, you know, this is the, the part that I have uh, challenged. And then he has a little footnote and he says... Despite some recent, rather insubstantial claims to the contrary, the Islamic background to Copernicus is fairly well established. See, and then he cites himself. So that's interesting. That that is an oblique reference to me. You know, he's saying, despite some recent insubstantial claims, uh, you know, everybody knows that of course Copernicus must have stolen these ideas. So, well, well, that is the way that these people refer to my work. So it's kind of interesting to put that into that kind of perspective but uh, whatever be that as it may let's look at the, the facts for example the lunar model this the model of the moon the moon's motion how is it modeled in the in copernicus and in the islamic authors for example here i have a quote from a, the big book by uh, george saliba the professor at columbia i believe uh, who says, Ibn al-Shatr's lunar model was indeed identical in every respect to that of Copernicus. Yeah, this is from Saliba's MIT Press book, 2007. So, uh, all right, so uh, that sounds compelling, doesn't it? Well, if, if the lunar model of, of these earlier Islamic astronomers was identical in every respect to Copernicus, well, no, that uh, sounds like, you know, this. you cannot chalk that up to chance can you well in fact uh, that statement is uh, let's look at the lunar model indeed first of all identical in every respect we have to understand that that means only qualitative respects not numerical parameter values you know the lunar model is going to consist of uh, this is the way people did astronomy back then it's basically a bunch of combinations of circles right so epicycles and stuff so the way you model the moon's motion is going to have to do with uh, some kind of main circle that pretty much have a revolution orbital time of basically a month and then there the are little correction terms you know additional circles that that account for for uh, complicated variations it is a three-body problem after all isn't it the moon and the sun and the earth the, so it's it's a complicated motion. So you're going to need combinations of multiple circles to get that stuff worked out. However, when you say that these models are identical in every respect, they are not identical as far as the numbers are concerned, as far as the orbital periods and or radii of all these various circles and stuff that are involved. Those are not identical at all. There is nowhere any numerical coincidence between the way Copernicus sets up his model and the way these... Arabic Islamic astronomers did so. There is no numerical evidence uh, for for coincidence. Copernicus obviously worked out his own numbers based on uh, tables and data that was available to him, and he did not copy any numerical parameters from uh, those uh, unpublished sources that he allegedly uh, plagiarized. So, uh, yes, identical in every respect. We must first certainly definitely qualify that, but okay, so identical in in as far as qualitative aspects are concerned, then they can be said to be identical. Let's look at what that means, you know. Basically, what I'm going to argue is, uh, look, um, I teach mathematics, right? I, I explain to students a certain theory throughout the course of the semester, and then we have a big exam at the end. And then I give them certain exercises that are sort of... Uh, that. Uh, that build on that theory, that are doable with the tools that I have given them, but that require a little bit, you know, going one step beyond. Obviously, what you get then is people come up with very similar solutions to the exam problems. Even though I put the students in a big exam room and I supervise the exam myself, I see they're all working in silence, they're not communicating, I, you know, you can't use your phone. So I know that they have worked independently, and yet... What I get back is people coming up with similar solutions to the problems that I gave them at the exam, which I know that I invented that problem myself. This has never been it's a problem that has never occurred anywhere before i I just made it up and i didn't tell anyone and I gave it to the students and I I got back these independent solutions that were based use the same ideas of course that's what you would expect that's normal I think everybody who has given mathematics courses know that that's just common you know uh, what to be to be expected under those circumstances if you try to solve the same problem with the same tools then you will get similar outcomes quite commonly that is just normal so I'm going to that's my basic starting point. For as far as these similarities are concerned between uh, uh, the two astronomical traditions, it is not at all surprising that there are these kinds of similarities. Insofar as they were trying to do the same, trying to solve the same kinds of problems using the same kinds of tools. Of course, both of these traditions, the the Arabic one and the and the European one, they're of course building on the Greek tradition. Ptolemy uh, had already given all the basic tools, all the mathematical ingredients were already, uh, you know, they're 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 working within that tradition very strongly within the Greek framework very strongly, and uh, using those tools to solve this problem. And they were facing the same problem also in the case of the moon, for example. So let's think about it. So, so how does the, the lunar model work? Well, first of all, you might have the the, the easiest thing you could do would be to say, well, the moon moves around the the earth and it takes one month, you know, so it's 28 days or something. And then uh, that doesn't work, you know, because the moon's motion is very complicated. It's not regular. It's not completely uniform. So the next thing you do is you add another epicycle. So instead of the moon moving around uniformly, the thing that moves around uniformly is another circle and the moon in turn is moving uniformly on the second circle, the epicycle. So therefore you have basically the second circle, a smaller circle sitting on top of the, you know, of the uh, attached to the circumference of the bigger circle that the, the little guy epicycle, because it's spinning, it's sometimes sort of putting the, the moon as it were ahead of where it would have been if it had been Following the uniform motion and sometimes behind where it would have been in a follow the uniform motion because of the, the little circle kind of pushes it forward and backwards, as it were. So, the epi- that's how epicycles work, So, you can try to do that. That's the, the standard kind of trick in the astronomer's toolbox, of course. In Greek times, you try to do everything with epicycles, doesn't work for the moon because it's a very complicated three body problem and it's very regular. So, you, know, you discover that what you want to do is the epicycle. It needs to, like I said, the epicycle kind of place. It, uh, it's a kind of deviation from the uniform motion, right? If you had the the moon move directly on just a big circle going around uniformly, then the uh, the epicycle can be thought of as a kind of a plus minus, a little correction factor, as it were, that uh, kind of sometimes pushes it forward and sometimes backwards. And what you want. It turns out you know, to correct for the three-body you know, complications. What you want to do is, is you're on the right track with the, with the epicycle model. It's kind of close-ish. However, what you want to do is the, the epicycle correction needs to be greater in some part of the orbit and lesser in other parts of the orbit, depending on where the sun is because it's the influence of the sun. So you're going to want to, as it were, magnify the effect of the epicycle Certain parts and, and shrink it in other parts. And Ptolemy indeed does that. All of the everything I just said was already well known to the Greeks. Ptolemy knew about all of that and he solved it, a problem. And he solved it by bringing the epicycle closer and further away from the observer, as it were. To, he has a, an, another a combination of circles that amounts to uh, basically a, a kind of sucking the moon towards the earth. In order to magnify the effect of the epicycle, because of like a perspective effect, you know, when it's closer to the observer, it looks bigger, so to speak. The radius of the epicycle can look bigger when it's closer to you, and conversely, in the part of the orbit where you want the epicycle effect to be smaller, you bring the epicycle away from the observer, and then you have the epicycle looking small. That is to say that the the radius of the epicycle that causes the correction factor is uh, lesser, has a lesser impact on the uh, Net position of the moon. So this is how Ptolemy solves the problem. Uh, it's a fine solution as far as the angular position of the moon is concerned. Of course, the main purpose of a lunar model is to determine kind of the angular position, so to speak. And that is to say, uh, you know, for, for example, if you want to predict eclipses and things like that, you want to know uh, the position where the moon is located, where uh, you know, which, which line of sight it is uh, towards the center of the moon you know and and the downside of ptolemy's theory comes only if you interpret it as a kind of a physically accurate theory you know it is good enough for computation purposes to know where the moon is going to be and when the next eclipse is going to occur ptolemy's theory is fine but it's problematic if you interpret it physically because it would mean that the moon would sometimes be very close to us and sometimes a lot further away and That would be very evident visually because the moon should sometimes look way bigger and sometimes way smaller. And we know from experience the moon looks kind of the same all the time pretty much and certainly nowhere near as much variation as Ptolemy's theory uh, would force us to postulate. So, therefore, Ptolemy's theory, it has an issue uh, kind of an issue. I mean, uh, you know, it depends on what you want the lunar theory to do. You could say, look, the, the moon, the model was never intended to model this phenomenon in the first place. The, the the model is intended to mod to describe most angular position, to describe a motion kind of sideways, as it were, and not depth motion, you know. It's not meant to, you're not supposed to use the model to infer how far away the moon is at whatever point in time you're you're only supposed to use it to infer how many degrees away from the sun is it you know uh, so uh, it's a so so the fact that ptolemy kind of predicts as it were that the moon should be sometimes very big and sometimes very small you might say it, 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 that it is a problem in some ways if you want to be a realist you know if you want to interpret the, the theory physically on the other hand you can also say well there since Ptolemy only ever uses the theory anyway to determine angular you know, position between the sun and the moon, then, uh, you know, who cares? that was not, You're not meant to use the theory that way, so it doesn't matter what the theory says about it. So either way, realism versus instrumentalism, you know, you can, well. So uh, in any case, it is quite reasonable to interpret these things physically. We know that Ptolemy himself also had a realist ca- interpretations of his his models, you know, he uh, he, he used the, his planetary models to determine planetary distances, and so he was certainly not no stranger himself to the idea of taking his models uh, as literal physical truths and not merely as computational devices. But, well, well, either way, you can understand that uh, in, in subsequent astronomical tradition, obviously people would have looked at this stuff in Ptolemy and they, it's quite natural – many people this idea would have occurred to them that well this is kind of a blemish you know that it makes these absurd predictions about the distance to the moon varying greatly and that we should come up with a better lunar model doesn't have that defect let's try to do that if we can Uh, this is what i mean is kind of analogous to the exam problem so to speak in my scenario where i'm where uh, mathematics students make independent discoveries during an exam scenario. So the the toolbox of Ptolemy, is, that's like the lecture course, you know, and then the, the how do you fix the lunar model? That's like an exam question. So the, uh, indeed, it is true that uh, Ibn Shatir and Copernicus did come up with the same solution to this problem. But really, think about it for yourself for a second. Uh, so remember, what did you want to do now? So you have the you have a circle uh, on a circle, as it were, an epicyclic scenario. Uh, so, and you want to increase the epicycle effect in some parts of the orbit and decrease it in some other parts. You can do it prospectively, as it were, by moving the epicycle closer and further. What other way do you think would be a good idea? You know, if you. You, you basically want the epicycle to to be bigger sometimes and smaller sometimes. How am I supposed to achieve that, do you think? And I'm, I'm supposed to work within the classical tradition, which is uses circles and epicycles all the time. So how could I possibly do it? Hmm, hmm, you know, what a complicated problem. Look, the solution is very evident. You have already thought of it yourself, maybe. Just add one more epicycle. That's it one more epicycle, of course, if the epicycle is like a little plus minus factor, you know, a little plus minus epsilon, you can, you can fix this little deviation. So if you add an epicycle that is timed just right, I mean, then effectively, it just makes the radius of the, you know, the second epicycle is living on top of the, of the first epicycle, and it you can choose the, the period of revolution of the second epicycle, so you can choose it in such a way that sometimes it's pointing outwards and sometimes it's pointing inwards whenever you need, you know. So that that basically makes the radius is as if the radius of the, of the first epicycle had been sometimes bigger and sometimes smaller, just what you wanted. So this is so evident, this is so natural. How could somebody not think of this? And this is the entirety of the similarities between Copernicus and Immanuel Schatzler's lunar models, remember, oh, Copernicus and Immanuel Shatter have the same lunar model in every respect. Wow, ooh, it's incredible, you know. This is it. You you spot an obvious flaw in Ptolemy's theory in the classical Greek tradition that they were both building on, and they solve it with an obvious solution that uses. The most obvious idea within that tradition. Just stick another epicycle on it. It's like a, a cliche, you know, that astronomers, anytime they run into a problem, just one more epicycle, you know, and like fix it. That's that's it. There's a, a Copernicus and El Chacha have the same lunar model. They just use one epicycle to fix an obvious. Blatant flaw in Ptolemy's theory, and that's it. But this is the entirety of the, the complete extent of the so-called identical in every respect. You know, so in my opinion, this doesn't prove anything, and anybody can come up with this in five minutes. I mean, I, I try to describe it here to you in such a way that you come up with this idea yourself. You know, maybe, you know, it's it's, it's so simple. And so you cannot conclude anything from this. Copernicus would need to, in some complicated way, try to get his hand on these complicated, uh, on advanced sources in a language that he couldn't read, you know, in order to, in order to come up with this uh, basic idea. So, well, well, that's a, an example of these kinds of similarities, and I think a similar pattern applies for the other ones. Uh, there are a couple of other comparable uh, situations and that's pretty much the the basis for for the case for in transmission you know these kinds of examples so um i you know if the so-called consensus you know i am challenging the consensus of that uh, there must have been transmission these people like to say and for example i have uh, a quote here from the rutledge handbook on the of the sciences in in Islamic societies. It is a handbook published just now, I think this year. So, there we have a chapter on planetary theory and Islamic societies. So, and it has interestingly the same kind of formulation. This time it is not by Jamil Aghaib himself, but by somebody who, who writes in the same uh, vein, and says, despite some recent controversy, the main consensus is that Copernicus obtained information from the works of al tusi Al-Uridi, and Ibn al shatir probably during his education in Italy, and incorporated these ideas in his own astronomical work. So that's interesting. Despite some recent controversy, that's me, I'm the recent controversy, with my publications, which are not cited, you know. Of course, this Rutledge handbook, just like Jamila Gap, they refuse to cite me, of course. They just say, look, uh, that's controversy, and the consensus is that Copernicus uh, obtained obtaining from me. This is their strategy to uh, minimize the impact on my work. And indeed, when they do cite the stuff, the uh, article that they cite is uh, the, uh, you know, Jamila Gap's uh, article from 2019. It's it's a um, one that was cited here here in the Rutledge Handbook and also by Regab himself, which is the the only substantial thing that Regab has written after my my articles appeared when he sort of tries to address uh, these things. So in this article, Jamila Regab's article for 2019. He attacks Noel Swerdlow, the the leading authority I mentioned earlier. So these are basically the two main proponents of the transmission thesis. You know Noel Swerdlow, Jamie Dragap, the big professors who have done all the key research on this issue. Now they are at war with each other, interestingly. Here are some... I'm citing, quoting some words here now from the 2019 article by Jimmy Dragup. He says, "Oh, there are an, there's an unacknowledged conundrum for Noël Swerdlow, and that's uh, so always finding very problems with that." And Dragup says, "We are uncomfortable with the numerous ad hoc assumptions that Swerdlow needs to make, you know, in his account of of uh, these things. How Copernicus came up with these kinds of ideas, and so on." And uh, as they also acknowledge, Swerdlow has already offered a critique of some of the central points of, of this paper. <laughs> so there, that's true. Swerdlow has also, uh, indeed, written an angry article against Jamila Gap about this stuff. This is great stuff, you know, dog eats dog, right? These people are just supposed to be on the same team. And remember, consensus. These people, they refuse to cite me and so on and say, oh, that's all a bunch of rubbish because of the consensus that there was uh, this kind of influence on of, of Copernicus. Very interesting that these two main proponents of the so-called consensus are attacking each other. Let's see what Nolte Swerdlow says. Here's his article from in 2017, the Journal of History of Astronomy, so that's after my article had appeared. Nolte Swerdlow, California Institute of Technology, uh, goes through the uh, kind of reconstruction offered by Europe of these kinds of things. Professor Regepp has trouble with numbers and computations throughout his paper. And he claims to find various faults that are fatal to Professor Gep's assumption. This is a quote from Noel Swirlow. You know, it's quite striking. I wonder whether even Professor Regepp himself can believe these such and such, you know, which he has, the points that he has criticized. So, you know, very strong words there from a distinguished professor toward to another. So, and, uh, you know, indeed, they disagree about various points of substance. For example, Regepp is saying in his 2019 paper that probably uh, Copernicus would have had diagrams, but not Ibn al shatis text. This is a quote here from his article that they postulate or hypothesize that it's likely that Copernicus would have done his borrowing on the basis of diagrams, but not of text. Of course, he couldn't read Arabic, so he would have perhaps been inspired by some diagrams. That is what they hypothesize. And then you have Noel Swerdlow, on the other hand, is aware of that. Um, they had already voiced that idea earlier. So so that's the point that Swerdlow criticized in 2017 paper as well. Or, and one more of the points that he criticized in 2017 where he's saying, I doubt whether Copernicus had figures. This is Noel Swerdlow's uh, words in his paper there. So, you see, these are the two main proponents of the so-called consensus. One one of them is saying, ah, Copernicus, he would have copied it based on diagrams only, and he couldn't read the text. And the other guy is saying, no, I doubt that he had any figures, and he probably got it from qualitative descriptions, maybe verbal descriptions, or what have you. But in any case, uh, they are obviously not agreeing with each other. This this is the so-called consensus. So, and another trick that Jamil Argepp has invented. Uh, he says that uh, uh, Arabic Islamic astronomers, they had their models, certain of these models, the ones that Copernicus borrowed, they have a certain heliocentric bias is a term that he has invented for this purpose. Uh, obviously, heliocentrism, putting the sun in the center of solar system, Copernicus is Copernicus's innovation, and nobody is saying that Copernicus borrowed that from from the, the Arabic astronomy. It's nowhere in the Islamic tradition can you find that Uh, stated or or maintained that the sun is in the center. So that's obviously Copernicus's own innovation. But cleverly, Jamil Raghev has thought of uh, this kind of marketing uh, trick that you can come up with the term heliocentric bias, which means some models are easier than others to convert into heliocentric form. And that's so he comes up with. So he starts talking about heliocentric bias and tries to make it sound all the more impressive than it is, these these, these alleged connections. Indeed, Noel Swerdlow criticizes that as well in his article. And he says, the so-called heliocentric bias, it has no significance. As he says, has no significance with is in italics here in Noel Swerdlow's paper. He's quite mad about it. And he says, all that Professor Regepp writes about so-called heliocentric bias is beside the point and in fact simply wrong. You know? That's no swerdlo talking, about this is one of the proponents of the so-called consensus attacking the other main proponent of the so-called consensus. So, you know, I'm not even needed anymore here to be a critical voice because they are already attacking each other uh, with the strongest in the strongest possible terms, you know. So, well, in any case. Be that as it may, uh, this is not a sociology study, you know, let's look at the scientific uh, side now. So, the Mercury model, uh, let's look at that, very interesting. So, we know about the Moon, now let's look at the planet Mercury. Well, according to Noel Swirlow in his original uh, paper, seminal work on this subject, uh, Noel Swerlow's work of 1973, He he analyzed the Comitariolas, you know, Copernicus has published his main book in 1543. But uh, before that, he had a a shorter informal treatise, unpublished treatise that was circulated, the so-called Comitariolas, which outlines his ideas. It has the sun in the center, it has the planetary models and so on. And uh, that had already been around for decades by the time the thing was published later, so he circulated among friends and stuff. Anyway, so no Swerlow analyzed this work, excellent technical uh, you know analysis. However, Swerlow made a mistake in this article, it will turn out, as I have proven. In any case what Swerlow says is that Copernicus's description is utter nonsense as a description of the apparent motion of Mercury. That is to say, the way Copernicus describes his Mercury model is erroneous. So, in other words, Copernicus didn't understand his own model. Copernicus is saying, here's how, how I make a, a, an account of how Mercury moves, how you calculate with Mercury's position, there's a certain combination of circles, and it goes like this. And uh, according to Noel Swerdlow, Copernicus's description is erroneous. So. Copernicus giving a model which is the same as some uh, previous model, Ibn al-Shatir's model. Then, and he it, disc- he it doesn't understand how it works, and he describes it erroneously how the model operates and which kinds of phenomena it produces. Then, of course, uh, it must be very powerful evidence indeed that Copernicus must have borrowed the model without understanding. Uh, how it worked, of course, if he invented it himself, he wouldn't have un- ended up with a good model without understanding how it worked. So, indeed, Noel Swirlo says this, he sa- calls this perhaps the best evidence that Copernicus was copying from Arabic-Islamic sources. Very well, perhaps the best evidence. George Saliba says in his famous book, I already mentioned George Saliba from uh, Columbia University, he says in his book, Swerdlow's Mercury argument elevates the discussion of the similarities to a whole new level. So indeed, the kind of endorsing, No Swirlo said this stuff that that was perhaps the best evidence in 1973. People have been co- copying it ever since. George Saliba's book is from 2007, and that is still, uh, you know, endorsed. This this uh, this powerful mercury argument that everybody loves to this day. It says so if you go to the Ibn Shatir. Wikipedia page it says uh, there's a subsection about the influence of Copernicus and there it says Copernicus's Mercury model was flawed in the fact that he was not able to properly understand the model first created by Ibn al-Shatir so Wikipedia certainly endorses exactly no Swerdlow's point from 1973 you know it's wrong and these people have been citing this for decades but that was what I proved in my 2014 paper that Swerdlow is mistaken And what Copernicus says is accurate. It is true. He gives a correct description of the motion of Mercury. And therefore, it is no evidence at all of any kind of transmission. He might just as well have invented this theory himself. Since he understands it perfectly, there's no reason to postulate that he must have stolen it. So, you know, this is, uh, in fact, a straightforward fact. I mean, this... Swerlo was wrong about that, that is uh, undisputed. In fact, I had an email correspondence with No Swerlo back then where my article appeared, and he was very mad at me. And he, uh, Well, we don't have to go into all of that, but uh, he doesn't dis- agree with my standpoint um, as a whole. Nevertheless, regarding the Mercury argument, he was an honest enough scholar to say, uh, I quote him here, you got me there. I should not have said that. These are the words of Noel Swerdlow in, in his emails to me when we had this debate. So indeed, he uh, even Noel Swerdlow himself conceded that uh, this idea that Copernicus didn't understand his Mercury model is completely refuted. Uh, there's nothing left of that uh, nonsensical argument. So in fact, Jamil uh, Raghepp, the other main proponent of the t- transmission thesis, also agrees in print in 2019 he says uh, he's talking about me and that's me you know blåsjö does point to an illuminating mistake in swirlow's understanding on mercury blah 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 as blåsjö has recently shown swirlow based its assessment on a misunderstanding etc etc so repeatedly makes use of this point you know because he's at, now he's at, at the you know these people who are supposed to be allies are attacking each other, you know? So, so indeed he's endorsing my refutation, my rebuttal. Of and, and, you know, so any case, so the point is that, uh, what Swerdlow called perhaps the best evidence is hundred percent refuted. And everybody agrees, including Swerdlow himself and Jamila Ragreb, the other main proponent, uh, and only Wikipedia hasn't uh, gotten around to, you know, being up to date about that, but everybody else knows that there's nothing. That this Mercury nonsense is is zero evidence whatsoever. It is not the best evidence. It is no evidence. You know, all this stuff I've been saying, it's all about the Mercury model. But let's look at the science for, for once and stop ranting about, you know, all these, these uh, little petty academic disputes. They're not so interesting, but the science is quite interesting. So let's study the way that Copernicus describes Mercury's motion geometrically. So first we can look at Venus because Mercury is like Venus but worse, you know. Mercury is one of the worst planets, it is very it has erratic motion. Uh, it's also very hard to observe, you know, because it's so close to the sun, so usually it is hidden in the, the the brightness of the sun makes it difficult to observe. So if we look at Venus first it's a bit easier. So Ptolemy's model for Venus consists of an epicyclic motion so you have the big circle the deferent and the little circle the epicycle so a circle on a circle and that's how you describe the motion of venus but that's not enough you also have the equant you have a point so so that is to say the circular motion needs to be uniform but however uh, you using the equant is kind of a trick to get effectively non-uniform motion but with a kind of Well, technically, it's uniform because the motion along the big circle is uniform, seen from a point that is not the center of the circle, the equant point. So it's uniform motion in a kind of a cheat way, technically, in certain sense, you could call it uniform because it looks uniform for an observer that's standing, not an observer standing at the middle, actually, because the observer standing at the center point of the circle the motion is not uniform, along the, you know, the circular motion is not uniform. However, it is uniform if you stand a little bit off from the center and there's a certain magic spot where you can stand and it will look uniform. So in that sense, you can say it is uniform. Uh, we are sort of adhering to the idea of uniform circular motion, which is a kind of metaphysical or whatever a methodological restriction that, that astronomy is subject to. So very well. Ptolemy uses that he has the epicycle and the equant. Copernicus doesn't like the equant stuff, you know, and he eliminates it in his in his models and basically replaces it with an additional epicycle. So his his Venus model is gonna go epicycle plus epicycle. It's gonna have the the, the big circle and then little circle and one more guy. Just like with the uh, with the moon for that matter, just stick another epicycle on the thing because the equant is not regarded as well. I mean, yeah, you can this this idea of the equant point you can criticize it either like philosophically or metaphysically and be like circle the perfection of circles and uh, some kind of like the idea that the world should be based on uh, on perfect circles somehow and another way to criticize it is also in terms of physics as kepler was later to emphasize that it's it's not uh, physically viable to have these you know what would be the physical mechanisms that would cause those kinds of things it's more natural to have perfect uniform circular motion is kind of More physically plausible. Anyway, either way, Copernicus didn't feel like the so he replaced. Doesn't matter. Uh, The point is that uh, Copernicus' Venus model corresponds one component by component to Ptolemy's model. You have the as many. Uh, ingredients, as it were, you have the. Where Ptolemy you had an epicycle and an equant, Copernicus has an epicycle and an epicycle. So it is a one-to-one kind of match. You kind of mimic uh, Ptolemy's behavior, component by component, and then Mercury, you're going to have one more thing. So Ptolemy has one more ingredient, and Copernicus has one more ingredient, indeed, on top of the Mer- Venus model. So just as Ptolemy's Mercury has a kind of variable radius, kind of. Uh, Trick, sort of similar to what he had for the moon, it kind of the moon, the planet is sort of pulled in and out a little bit. So, uh, Copernicus also uh, has that one addition to his Venus model. You know, he has this epicycle, it's the same as for Venus, but an additional trick, which is a radius a variation. Just as Ptolemy's additional ingredient for Mercury was a radius variation, bringing Mercury sometimes closer, sometimes further, uh, that. It's exactly what Copernicus does also. He adds on top of the Venus model one more thing, which is a radius variation. And he does that with using a so-called 2C couple. So that is named after one of these Islamic astronomers that uh, from which from whom he is alleged to have borrowed 2C. So the 2C couple is a way to uh, generate uh, rectilinear motion from Uniform circular motion. So you have two circles. By combining the motions of two circles, you can get rectilinear motion. So uh, you may have seen this some like animations of that. It's kind of a striking fact that a circle rolling within a circle, a, uh, a circle rolling within a circle twice its its diameter. Then, if you trace the um, a point on the circumference of the smaller inner rolling circle, then it traces a straight line, namely the diameter of the circle. So you can generate uh, rectilinear motion through a combination of two circular motions, in other words. And uh, another way to arrive at this idea is uh, from the starting with the idea, the epicycle concept, which we already spoke about. So the standard Ptolemaic epicycle, it's the, the number one trick of classical uh, ancient astronomy, the use of epicycles to describe you know any kind of uh, non uniform motion you just have a big circle and a little circle that makes a correction to the big one. however, if you make the radius of the epicycle equal to the radius of the bigger circle the different, then you get a two secouple rate right? if, if these if these uh, if they if you have the matching periods of these two circles so in, in other words you know the two secouple couple is not such an exotic idea seen from the standpoint of classical astronomy, all you need to do is take the ubiquitous standard epicycle model that is that Ptolemy uses a thousand times, and you just need to take the simplest possible period relation between the two circles, the s- standard uh, scenario, and just set the radii of the two circles equal to each other. Now you have a two-couple. Now, the where the path of the planet, as it were, would, would have been a planet in the old, in a standard use of the epicycle, we are modeling the motion of of a planet or a heavenly body. And uh, that point that would have represented the planet in a normal case, now that you have done this trick where you set the radius equal to the radius, that will now trace a straight line instead of a kind of a squiggly, uh, you know, path of the orbital path. So the 2 couple is not far, it's not so strange to imagine that several people might come up with this idea. You just take the ubiquitous uh, standard Ptolemaic epicycle model, just stick the radius equal to the radius, and boom, boom, done, 2 couple. So it is, uh, you know... independent discovery is not uh, the craziest idea you ever heard, you know, and there are other uh, indications about where other sources of inspiration for this idea, but the, the, the combination, how to generate rectilinear motion for circular motion, is also alluded to in proclosination sources and so on. So, well, any case, be that as it may. So, you know, if we, so this is the the way that I, uh, uh sort of described the, uh, sort of naturalness of Copernicus' account of Mercury's motion, that uh, indeed Ptolemy has the additional ingredient for Mercury as compared to Venus is a radius variation. And the additional for Copernicus, it's the same thing. The, the additional ingredient from the Mercury model is a radius variation, and the radius variation is done with the 2 a couple, which means that it, because then you are varying the radius purely you know because you're generating rectilinear motion this way that is to say you, you kind of uh, operate directly with the radius so you don't have what Ptolemy has it's a combinations of circles in a certain way so it kind of doesn't uh, purely uh, make the radius bigger or smaller it also kind of wobbles a little sideways so it's kind of a trick you know, if you can compensate for that blah 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 whatever you work it out but you know, anyway, it's not so crazy that Copernicus would have wanted to use the Tusi couple for this because it is a radius variation. What Ptolemy is doing is obviously radius variation. So, so, and with generating rectilinear motion means being able to uh, make the the radius of one of your circles vary according to any prescribed period. So that's very useful indeed. So it's not so crazy that Copernicus would have come up with this concept, you know, he's using Ptolemy's Mercury model and he's translating it and he's coming up with uh, an analogous model that kind of corresponds component by component, he's mimicking what Ptolemy is doing, so it's not the craziest thing you ever heard, you know, that he would have come up with that independently, Uh, even though also uh, no wonder that also people in uh, the Arabic tradition would have come up with similar ideas. Now here is the argument from from Regepp in 2019 article against this. Well, in fact, in Mercury model is the one that is the one that is um, the same, so called. As, as Copernicus, is, well, it's not, of course, it's not the same. First of all, it's not heliocentric, of course. So that's, well, it's the same after you have transformed it from geocentric to heliocentric, blah, 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 And also not the same in terms of numbers. Once again, there's nothing to do with numbers anywhere in this kind of argument. But anyway, so Inland you know, has that idea of using a two-z couple as one of the building blocks, you know, of, the, uh, of varying the radius. Just as Ptolemy varied the radius. Okay, so in that sense, uh, we are supposed to believe that Copernicus copied Ibn al-Shatir then. And I'm, uh, if I say, look, uh, this is a natural idea, anybody can come up with this, it's, not, it's a kind of a small step from Ptolemy, as I try to explain, you can, you can kind of get there from natural reasoning based on, on Ptolemaic astronomy, and this they want to reject. And, and the way they do that is they say Ibn al-Shatir's Mercury model is quite distinct. So its virtual identity with those of the Copernicus' model is not something that can be dismissed as a natural outcome. So we should regard that as a kind of a low probability event, you know, that they that they do that. And how do they prove that it couldn't have been natural? Here interesting evidence that they provide for that. They say, in fact, there were there was a wide array of non-tolemaic mercury models. And they give these examples. Aldin Shirazi claims to have invented nine different Mercury models, and Kafri presented four. So, you know, a bunch of people are making up a bunch of Mercury models, and so therefore, it, it could, you know, the, the choice that Copernicus made is not predetermined, you know. Because there were all these other possibilities, and uh, it's not only one that's natural, but other people can, might think that something else is more natural or more, or better somehow. So very well, uh, that's their argument that they can't be natural. I think it is a problematic argument in s- numerous respects. Well, first of all, I mean, if there are a thousand Mercury models out there, and, and Copernicus is, happens to correspond to one of them, the one baril shater and it doesn't correspond to the other hundred models, you know, then... Well, that it's it's not so compelling is it i mean surely if if copernicus is making up his own model and there are already you know dozens of models already available then no wonder it's going to be happen to correspond to one of those because there's only so many different models you can invent right if other people are making up lots of models why wouldn't it correspond to one or the other for example lynn chartes there just by chance for that matter in any case uh, if it is like that, like they said, and it, it's true what they say indeed, that some guy invented nine different models, another guy presented four different models. Well, yes, it is true that, they, that the one guy came up with nine models and the other four and so on. And But those were uh, kind of uh, less uh, elaborate, less sophisticated types of variations of, of uh, Ptolemy. You know? They're kind of sticking one more epicycle on it to correct for a small thing. You know, Like you have the, the, the Ptolemy's model... Uh, theory and you observe that it deviates a little bit from the fact so you can make add a small correction factor somewhere so this kind of thing is more and more along those types of lines then you're kind of rethinking kind of like well i don't like to use the equant anymore it's not physically plausible i need to rework the whole theory to eliminate any dependence on that concept so that kind of stuff is a little more theoretically sophisticated but in any case uh, whatever uh, Let's just take it at face value then. So, so indeed, the, one guy invented nine models and another invented four in the Arabic Islamic tradition. Look, in other words, what does that prove, really? It proves that constructing mercury models is apparently very easy, isn't it? Why would Copernicus need to copy anybody? You know, if everybody can, if one guy can make up nine models, why couldn't Copernicus come up with one, right? And why would he go through the trouble of trying to? Uh, plagiarize it from some source that he can't read and maybe kind of second uh, try to reverse engineer it by looking at the pictures or something. What a hassle! If another guy can make up nine models, why couldn't Copernicus? How much effort would it be to make up one instead of trying to reverse engineer some random thing in some random manuscript that he? miraculously got his hands on, it doesn't exist anymore and there's not, not in no European library, but somehow he had it apparently. And then he would have not been able to read it, but nevertheless he would have kind of uh, fiddled with, you know, guessed what it might have meant from the, from the diagrams. Such a far fetched theory. Why would he go through all that trouble? If another guy can make up nine models, he can make up one, you know, and it's not worth the hassle to try to steal, plagiarize It's more work to plagiarize than to make up your own model. If, Isn't it? If you have that kind of situation where one guy makes nine models and another guy makes four. So, well, be that as it may, Uh, that's, you know, food for thought, isn't it? Uh, Now I turn to another argument, the lettering argument. So when Copernicus presents the Tusi couple, I just spoke about the Tusi couple that generates rectilinear motion from a combination of two circular motions. Tusi couple, so it's in the, it's in the Nasir al al Tusi, in the arbitrage. So, did Copernicus steal that thing? Some people have made an argument. Based on the lettering of the diagram, so Tusi has a treatise describing the Tusi couple, and it has a geometrical fi- configuration with the two circles in it, and it uh, labels the figures, A, B, C, D, and so on. In Arabic, you know, Aleph, Ba, and uh, Copernicus has a, also explains the Tusi couple, so he has an analogous figure, not the same figure you know it has a, a additional several additional components in it. Uh, Copernicus has three circles uh, Altusius only has two, and there's additional construction lines in certain places and so but right, well allegedly the same diagram so called supposedly more or less the same diagram with the same lettering. Essentially, not quite, but almost uh, for the uh, for those points. So, in Tycho's diagram, there is one, two, three, four, five, six points that are uh, labeled in the geometrical diagram, and in Copernicus's diagram, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So yeah, they are not the same diagram. They have different numbers of letters, and 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 so on. And in fact, even those letters that do. Uh, correspond you know that describe similar uh you know corresponding points they are also not quite the same there are six of them you know out of copernicus's eight letters six of them correspond to two and five of those are the correspond to the course you know the a corresponds to the aleph and so on and so it's uh the, the idea is supposed to be that he would have uh copied the, uh, those things interestingly it, it's one letter is off and that's you know, uh, he should have misread the Arabic then, apparently, or whoever. I mean, maybe Copernicus would have had some kind of guide or friend who would have helped him with the Arabic or something, who knows. But in any case, however, this far-fetched scenario is a complete bunch of science fiction, it doesn't make it bad. Anyway, uh, he must have misread it and so on. And uh, that is uh, in... uh, Saliba's book you know you have a whole thing about that where it's trying to explain how it's possible to misread that and the uh, two Arabic letters that look similar and that could be the reason why the, you know the component because uses different letters because it was a misreading of the Arabic and so on so let me play for you a recording here at, uh, this is Jim Al-Khalili the famous science popularizer speaking in a Documentaries, science in, in the Golden Age or something it's called. It's available on YouTube. You can go see Jim al speaking about Copernicus there and the Islamic influence on Copernicus. Here I quote the part about the lettering diagram. Compare this text written in Arabic with this one. It's an identical one but written in Latin. And what's fascinating is the letters labelling the points follow the Arabic alphabet not the Latin alphabet, so Elif Ba Gim Dahl A B G D. Clearly, whoever drew this mm-hmm. knew about Tulsi's mm-hmm. work and, and the Tulsi couple. Well the man who drew this was Copernicus. This was built on, on Tulsi's ideas. Yes, so it shows the continuity of science. Copernicus owes this debt to these medieval astronomers from the golden age. Mm, that's incredible. <laughs> So, right, yeah, well, those guys have cooler outro music, you know, than, than me, than I do in here in this podcast, but in any case, uh, in terms of content, that stuff is not convincing in my opinion. Let, let's get to that in a second, but let me actually play the same, because I have another clip saying the same thing, and this is uh, the professor uh, George Shaliba of Columbia University, so let me play that as well. Where well, the Arabic has Aleph, the Latin has A, Arabic has Ba, the Latin has B. Arabic has jim, the Latin has G. Arabic has ha, the Latin has H. Arabic has dal, the Latin has says so what's going on? <laughs> this is like a guy is not does not even does not even name the geometric points with his own invention. He copies them right out of the Arabic text and uses them. And from there on this text has become part of the corpus of Copernicus. So I very much disagree with this. Analysis, it is complete nonsense. In fact, Copernicus' lettering of the diagram is the natural Latin alphabetical labeling of the points in the order in which the points appear in the proof. Of course, that is how you label points in mathematical discourse, isn't it? The way Euclid does it every single time. When you prove something in geometry, the first point you mention is called A. The second point you mention is called B. The next one is called C. This is how mathematics works. It, it, you don't label it by looking at the diagram and sticking letters in what you think is visually appealing. Obviously, you, it is the order in which you mention them in the proof, and that's how you label. It. That's the way Euclid does it every time. Hundreds of propositions, every single time, he does exactly like that, and all the other authors do the same thing. It is just one hundred percent. As standard as can be in mathematical tradition to simply label the points alphabetically in the order in which they occur in your proof, nothing could be more standard than that, and that is exactly what Copernicus does every single one of its points a b c d e f g h in alphabetical ordering, the natural ordering the Euclidean ordering that you, you, every single property that 's what everybody does you just simply label them alphabetically. It is completely incredible that uh, Jibal Khalili actually literally says the opposite. You know, remember, I, I played it. Let me uh, play again just this little snippet here. The letters labeling the points follow the Arabic alphabet, not the Latin alphabet. That is exactly wrong. The, the lettering precisely does follow the, the Latin alphabet. Just read the proof and see which is the first point that is mentioned. It is the point A, which is the second point. That's meant. That is the Latin alphabetical ordering. You know, look, uh, if there was some crazy far-fetched, you know, that he had uh, uh, something very improbable happening in Copernicus's text, then you can make some kind of case and be like, how could we explain this unexpected, surprising, weird thing in Copernicus's text? Then you can start talking about hypothesizing uh, these kinds of unproven external influences but when copernicus is simply labeling the points in alphabetical order how on who would then in the right mind would then reach to say well the most plausible explanation for this is not that he simply labeled them in alphabetical order like every other mathematician always does but rather that he did so based on this completely unproven some copying from a language that he didn't read etc etc i mean it's insane the lettering argument is madness, and it has zero weight and zero credibility as far as I am concerned. Well, uh, let's turn to another argument. Uh, in Copernicus's manuscript for the uh, his big book, we have the handwritten version of that, and he has crossed out certain things. He, at a certain point, he explains how the Tuzo couple works. That is the, the same stuff that we just talked about. And, and in connection with that discussion, there is this crossed out passage in the handwritten version that doesn't occur in the published version. And there he says, some have called this motion, blah, 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 and given it the name, motion, longer than of a circle, it's not clear what exactly he's referring to or who he's referring to or what. But, but the point is that he's saying that somebody has already studied the kind of stuff that comes out of Tudus a couple, and they have given a name to it. Who are these mysterious some? Vucant aliqui, he says in Latin. Some has it's called. So what is? The, who are the mysterious? Nobody has been able to identify these people, unfortunately, even though Copernicus mentions the exact vocabulary that these some would have used unfortunately, no source has been located neither in Arabic nor in Latin or nor anywhere that uh, uh, who uses those exact words for something that could be uh, that could be copernicus 's source it's a big you know somebody really should dig this stuff up, and that 's going to be powerful evidence to to mediate this dispute here, but well, in any case, for now we don 't know that somebody Apparently had given a name to that somebody who Copernicus was aware of, right? So, of course, these transmission theses people then want to say, ah, well, it would have been the Arabic authors, maybe. Who knows? Uh, but uh, in fact, something that I have noted in this connection in my uh, in my article is that in fact, when Copernicus says some have called this uh, such and such a kind of motion, a motion along the diameter of a circle. Uh, when he's saying this, he doesn't say, he's not referring to the 2 c couple itself. He's referring to the kind of motion that results from the 2 c couple, which is in fact, in modern terms, simple harmonic motion. Y equals cosine of T, you know, it's up and down motion, uh, standard harmonic motion, like a harmonic oscillator that you see all the time in physics and it's, it's everywhere, you know, uh, Pendulum motion, springs, and, and, and a million other things. Everything is a simple and more costly. Y equals cosine of two. Simple co- it's just a cosine function of time, the y-coordinate of a the, of the thing that goes up and down. You know that, That's what you get out of the two-couple. It moves along the diameter of a circle and it kind of speeds up in the middle and it slows down and so on. So some have called that... Some have called simple harmonic motion something, something, something. That is what Copernicus is saying. He's not saying necessarily that these some that he's talking about, that they necessarily even knew about the 2 couple at all, they might have described simple harmonic motion in whatever other context, giving it a name from whatever other, in other kinds of terms, than than as the outcome of a 2 couple. Simple harmonic motion, of course, we all know it has to do with springs, with pendulums. In fact, uh, Copernicus himself is referring to those kinds of phenomena he speaks of objects um, swinging along the same path between two limits the those kinds of objects that kind of motion becomes faster in the middle and slower at the extremes he says and he's making that comparison for you know the kinds of phenomena that he's describing in astronomy so he's using a physical model you know physical common sense everyday experience to uh, you know as a as a reference for the kinds of types of motions that he's going to postulate in the heavens and he's calling referring to objects swinging along the same path between two limits i believe it is a pendulum probably that is that he, that is supposed to mean possibly a spring a bob on a spring you know if you take a spring and you have a hanging heavy object on it and you pull it and it goes boop boop in fact uh, Reticus has the same phrase in the in, you know the, Copernicus' disciple, Reticus, who knew Copernicus' words uh, very well. He was the, a close uh, you know, ally of Copernicus, a disciple who knew all these things. And he also speaks of the that this kind of motion resembles the motion of objects hanging in the air, he says. So probably pendulums, you know, and, or something comparable. So it could very well be then that when... Some people have given a name to simple harmonic motion. They could have done that in the context of trigonometry or in the context of physics, in the context of pendulum motion, for example, and so on. In fact, uh, they both say this also uh, right after having described this stuff about the objects in the air type of thing, that both Copernicus and Reticus go on to to say that Uh, basically make a reference to trigonometry and what copernicus says is that they treat its magnitude in terms of chords that's the magnitude of the motion chords is the old word for for trigonometry you know the chord of a circle was uh, like uh, corresponding to to uh, to sine functions, so to speak or or to cosines so uh, you know when yeah in, in other words simple harmonic motion has to do with trigonometry you know it's modeled by means of trigonometry that's what they're saying and like reticus says the same thing, the position of the diameter is determined from the doctrinal chords, that is to say, trigonometrically so it 's perfectly possible that that this kind of context would have been the sum that Copernicus might be talking about uh, doesn 't necessarily even have to do with the a couple per se. It could have to do with a simple harmonic motion, and there are all kinds of potential sources i 've been looking for, of course for that you know in those kinds of sources as well, where potentially where you might have Uh, vocabulary would have come from, you know, in European context. I have not been able to find it. So please help me out, you know, if you're, uh, uh, when I go digging around the Renaissance sources and and tell me where Copernicus gets this phrase from, I would be very happy to know about that. Anyway, let's look at another topic here. Um, So... And how would Copernicus have learned about these things? As we said, there is no evidence of any written transmission at that time. So even even Arabic sources were not available in Europe by any in any documented way. So let alone translations that Copernicus could read, or nor does anybody else re- refer to these authors, you know, in the in Latin sources at that time. So how on earth is that supposed to have happened? Well, the influence these people are, are have. One theory that is popular is a guy called Galliano, Moses Galliano, Jewish scholar. So that would have been a kind of intermediary who would have been sort of acquainted with Eastern learning and taken that to Europe. So he would have, been, according to, for example, Robert Morrison, who is one of the proponents of that hypothesis, Galliano brought some. Uh, he was extremely well informed and brought high level Islamic Islam to Venice and Padua. Allegedly, interestingly, this, uh, this thesis even made its way into the Washington Post, a newspaper uh, article, you know, written, uh, kind of a op-ed written by two historians of science, uh, Kathleen Crowder and Peter Barker, uh, written about a, a thing on. Uh, that was during the Trump years, and they wrote a. The, uh, an op-ed saying the title is What We Lose When We Lose Muslim Immigrants. So they make a whole political spin on that and they use the uh, historical supposed influence of Copernicus to bolster their case about uh, to draw modern political parallels. In, in any case, they say in this article that Galliano knew all the astronomy borrowed by Copernicus supposedly. So it's popular now to... Put your faith in in this Galliano as the potential intermediary. You know, however, I have investigated that in in try to find a little more uh, something more than, than an op-ed in the Washington Post. You know, to substantiate that. And for as far as I can tell, Galliano mentioned Ibn al-Shater once in one single sentence in passing, while himself advocating. A completely separate approach, completely at odds with the entire tradition that Ibn al-Shatir and these people stood for. So the, the you know, sort of evidence that he knew everything about these people is sort of half a sentence where he mentions Ibn al-Shatir, and in fact, he mentions him only in order to reject him because Ibn al-Shatir is using epicycles, and the and Galliano wants to uh, thinks that it's wrong to use epicycles at all in astronomy, and everything should be a circular motion with a uniform center. So, in fact all of the astronomy that is so-called borrowed by Copernicus from Islamic sources, all of that is epicycles all the way through everything, you know, the Tuesday couple, the, the lunar model, the Mercury, the epicycles, 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 Galliano, in fact, dismissed epicycles categorically as the wrong way on philosophical grounds. He wasn't much of a technical astronomer, right? But he sort of philosophically was opposed to epicycles and wrote about that a little bit in a kind of qualitative cosmological uh, type of way and this is supposed to be the the guy who transmitted detailed technical information to more or less to copernicus or you know to to italy and then maybe one step away from copernicus or something you know so it's you, you there are these bombastic claims about uh, allegedly these missing links being found but then when you look at the details it is uh, not as convincing, in my opinion. You can consider also, for example, this guy, Galeano, he doesn't seem to be particularly skilled uh, technically, you know, in mathematics and astronomy. For example, uh, David King is a, an expert on astrolabes. He has a, a big paper on cataloging a bunch of astrolabes. And he uh, has a discussion about one astrolabe attributed to this guy Galliano, the, the the hero, the the guy who the missing link, you know, who's supposed to have informed Copernicus about all these things, allegedly knew everything even though he was himself opposed to that entire In any case. Here's what David King, the ex- the leading expert on astrolabe, says about Galliano's astrolabe. Galliano's astrolabe is non functional. The operation of it boggles the mind. We can be certain that it was never carried out. The astrolabe put aesthetic considerations before common sense. At least two of the pointers on the astrolabe, including the one for the only bright star selected, are incorrectly positioned. The only bright star is featured with the wrong longitude, not one degree or two degrees off, but 30 degrees off. The maker of the astrolabe most certainly was not well-versed in star lore, and he did not use the best available star lists but some other very corrupt earlier source all right so these are all quotes you know from david king from the leading authority on astrolabes who doesn't have anything uh, any any horse in the uh, in the race here as far as the transmission thesis is concerned he's just looking at it from astrolabes and this is the galliano the, the the technical you know a vessel that would have brought all these kinds of knowledge, and he, uh, that that's the kind of technical knowledge that he possessed, uh, judging by his, this astrolabe that he evidently made. So, well, well, that's food for thought, isn't it? Let's look at another uh, of these sort of... Uh, the very, very, very indirect evidence that this kind of knowledge might have been available in Europe. Another case is Nicolas Orem, famous philosopher, Fourteenth centuries so before Copernicus, and he wrote uh, some stuff very, very scientifically shallow commentaries on on some cosmological questions. Uh, according to Jamil Raghib, Orem is aware of Nasir al-Din Tusi's Tusi couple. It is implausible in the extreme to assume that he reinvented it. You know that Orem reinvented it in Europe and that, that without learning about the more advanced. Uh, theories of the, from the East. That is Jameel O'Grepp's thesis. So therefore, you know, if we can find evidence of the Tusi couple in the writings of Nicolas Orem in sort of, uh, medieval Europe, then that proves that there must have been transmission somehow, right? So, let's have a look at the thesis. I put it all in my slides over there, the translation into English of this treatise by Nicolas Orem. Well, does he even have a Tusi couple at all? Uh, no, and he, what Orem says indeed is that it is possible for some planets to be moved perpetually in a rectilinear motion. It's a composite of several circular motions. So yes, indeed, he he makes the point that you can get rectilinear motion by combinations of circles. However, that is not the same thing as the Tusi couple because he doesn't say he doesn't specify this uh, quantitatively. He doesn't say what the radii of these circles need to be, what the periods of these circles need to be, what combination exactly of circles achieves this effect. He merely reasons qualitatively that, in principle, uh, the motion of one circle can be cancelled by another circle, somehow or other, you know, whatever, however much the first circle turned and brought the planet upward, so to speak, then the second uh, circle can spin by whatever amount required to bring the the thing back down to the same line again. And you can keep doing like that if you, you know, but that does not entail that he's aware of the 2 couple because he doesn't realize that that is a specific combination of radii and periods that can make that happen. He only envisions for my interpretation, he only envisions that, you know, you have the big circle turning and then you have the second circle turning by whatever amount is needed to cancel the first one, which for for all he knows that could be a very kind of irregular, doesn't follow any pattern, any law necessarily. It's just the second circle could cancel it by some by simply whatever the first motion was, just cancel. And in the next second it moves, and then you cancel it by whatever amount is needed. In the, and then the second after that it turns again, and you cancel it by whatever by turning the second circle, but maybe by turning the second circle but different amounts you know, in these different circles and these different intervals of times, in, in the first second and the second second and the third one and so on, you, you may need to, uh, the, the, the correction motion of the second circle might be very different in all this for all, for all he knows because Nicolas Rem is not studying this stuff as a mathematician at all. He's just reasoning qualitatively about that. So therefore, in my opinion, you cannot conclude that he knew about the 2 couple. That's not at all it contained in his text. He's only speaking... Purely, qualitatively. In fact, interestingly, uh, Rageb even actually says, uh, he tr- sort of acknowledges this in, a, in an oblique way and tries to use that in his favor, you know, because uh, Nicolas Orem has a lax understanding of the necessity of having the epicycle move at twice the speed of the deferent. This is Jamil Ragip's point. He's saying that, well, because Orem doesn't understand these details well, all the more reason that he, he couldn't have invented it because he didn't un- fully understand it you know well of course a better uh, interpretation in my opinion is that he's not talking about the twos couple at all it's not just talking about a, a complicated technical idea that he doesn't understand he's talking about a simple qualitative idea that is trivial and, and doesn't have anything to do with the twos couple so that is a more natural interpretation instead of saying that he's trying to incorporate complicated technical knowledge. This guy who doesn't know any mathematics is supposed to have. It's very far-fetched. In fact, Orem specifically says, erroneously states, and I quote him, it is impossible for a planet to be so moved, that is to say, along a rectilinear circle, if such circular motions are regular. So... He in fact specifically says that you can't do it with uniform motions, which is exactly what you can with the Tusi couple. So he's in fact explicitly denying that you can do it with uh, with uniforms so with the possibility of precisely what the Tusi couple achieves. So clearly he's not well informed about the Tusi couple, and he's kind of does his best to describe it, but rather he has no idea about the Tusi couple, and he's making a trivial point that is much, much, much more basic. And has nothing to do, it has no relevance whatsoever for Copernicus or for, for any advanced astronomer. This is just a philosopher yapping, yapping about trivial things and has zero relevance for technical astronomy. And here's another argument that Regep makes in this, uh, about this. He says Nicolas Urema makes no claim to have invented this model on his own. Which is very peculiar. Actually, he does make that exact claim. He, he, he clearly says at the beginning of this section, it says concerning this matter, I posit three conclusions. And the first conclusion is the one I just cited that the planet can be moved perpetually in rectilinear motion, which is combined by several circular motions. So, in fact, it's very perplexing how Jamila Raghupkin can say he's trying to. Uh, say that because Orem doesn't claim originality for this discovery, therefore he sort of implies that it must have been non-original, that it must have been taken from an earlier source. But actually he does say, I posit, you know, right at the beginning uh, of that. So he does claim originality, so it doesn't make any sense in the first place. But regardless, this idea about if someone doesn't claim it's original, then you can sort of... Uh, almost infer or kind of the plausibility suggests that it wouldn't have been the author's own discovery. If it doesn't explicitly say, this is my invention, then you're supposed to, that makes it plausible to assume that he would have copied it from somewhere. That is a claim that Jameed Dragap is trying to uh, sort of generalize. He he makes that argument about uh, the REM thing, but he also does that generally. Uh, he, makes, he says it would be quite unusual for someone who invented as significant a device as the Tuesday couple not to claim it as his own, allegedly. Uh, that's Jamila Gep's opinion. I'm quoting it now from his article about that. So. Uh, I think it is a completely unrealistic expectation, you know. That's not how mathematicians write, you know. You don't read a math treatise and then all of a sudden in the middle when some important idea is introduced, the author jumps in in the first person and be like, oh, you know, by the way, I came up with this myself. You know, oh, look at me, I invented this, you know. That's not how how one writes science, you know. So, perplexing. Yeah that Dragep uh, yeah, would, would try to use that as as, as, as part of his argument. I, I'm not buying it. It doesn't convince me. All right. Here's another argument that Dragep makes in the same article. Why would someone seek to start from scratch when it was certainly known in the 15th and 16th centuries that Islamic astronomers still had much to teach the European counterparts? Right, so, you know, Islamic astronomy is so advanced, why would you uh, try to do something on your own when you're much better off trying to learn what all these people had done first? You know, it's interesting that Tragep makes that claim and ha- attaches a footnote to it. Let's read the the footnote. Let's see what the evidence is that this was the case, that the Islamic astronomy was so advanced that there was no point for Europeans to think for themselves because there's so much to learn first, you know. Let's look at what the evidence is that uh, that the great leading proponent of the transmission thesis, Jerminogrepp, advances for that thesis. The footnote has one reference, and the footnote says, this was even the case in the early 17th century, and it refers to an article by Feingold about the 17th century, so, well, Allegedly, we are supposed to infer that if even in the 17th century people thought Arabic astronomy was so advanced that there is no point to think for yourself because you have so much to learn from the Islamic tradition. That uh, you know, if that was still the case in the 17th century, then it must have been the case already in Copernicus' time in the 16th century, right? So let's look at the other. Or okay, so the article cited is the one by Finegold uh, about indeed what uh, how people viewed. Arabic-Islamic learning in in astronomical matters in the 17th century. I am quoting now from the article that Jamil Ragheb himself chose as his only source to support his claim that Arabic astronomy was so advanced. Let's see what that one source that he himself cited actually says. I quote, Arabic astronomy was usually adjudged either as derivative of the Greeks or at best, the fruit of sheer drudgery. That's Feingold's summary, and he goes on to cite uh, primary sources. Here's one quote from a 17th century source. How great the loss of time was to study much the Eastern languages, since there was no treasure of things to become at. So this is somebody who has uh, spent time learning Arabic in order to study those, those sources and then coming to the conclusion there was no treasure there after all. So this is a 17th century uh, conclusion. And another uh, contemporary uh, you know, voice from that era is Francis Bacon who said as follows, I quote him, the sciences which we possess come for the most part from the Greeks, neither the Arabians nor the schoolmen need be mentioned, who in the mean, intermediate time rather crushed the sciences with a multitude of treatises, than increased their weight. So this is Francis Bacon condemning the, the Arabic tradition as well as the European medieval tradition, saying that they didn't do much of anything and you should just go back to the Greeks. So uh, here's another example, Joseph Glanville, he says, in from in another 17th century, so, these successors of the Greeks did not advance their learning beyond the imperfect stature in which it was delivered to them. So, you know, it didn't go much further than the Greeks, in other words. Here's another uh, 17th century source, William Wouton, speaking about these matters, and he says, The Arabs translated the Grecian learning into their own language, but had very little of their own, which was not taken from those fountains. There is little to be found amongst them which anybody might not have understood as well as they if he had carefully studied the writings of the Grecian masters. There are vast quantities of their astronomical observations, but not anything in them which those Arabian astronomers did not or might not have learned from Ptolemy's analogist if we set aside their observations which the Grecian masters taught them to make. So this is uh, yet another. So we have here quotes from four different uh, 17th century authors, all making this kind of point that kind of disappointed in uh, what uh, medieval authors accomplished, as in both in in uh, the Arabic world as well as in uh, in Europe. So it's a bit perplexing that this is what Jamiroquai himself cites. This very source, the one that I just quoted from at length, is what he himself chooses. To put forward as his evidence that you know Copernicus uh, would have had so much respect for the Arabic tradition that he wouldn't even have bothered trying to be original because he would feel that there's these great masters from the East are so superior that I might as well just take stuff from them. So, well, it is a bit of a perplexing uh, perplexing fact that the source says the the opposite of what Jacob uh, wanted, right? Okay, so. That's, I will conclude here, I have tried to cover all the main arguments in favor of the, the transmission from the late Islamic authors on to Copernicus. What I have presented are the best arguments, uh, believe it or not, for that so-called consensus and standard opinion. So, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the, the contextual argument, it, it sort of cultural arguments are very flimsy and... The part that has some teeth, some weight, are the technical arguments based on the similarities of the models, but as far as I'm concerned, independent discovery is perfectly plausible. Thank you.